Okay, um, so, so we're continuing on with letter four, um, and I'm just going to jump in from uh, just to, to give us a bit of a recap where we're standing. This is Rav Hirsch's articulation of what it means to be human, basically. We spoke about the vision of the world from a from Rav Hirsch's standpoint of how he would tell this with his interlocutor. Your first step between uh, in understanding what Judaism is is understanding how Judaism views the world. What is the world from a Jewish standpoint or a Jewish standpoint? Because you, if not, you're always falling into the trap of asking if Judaism is fulfilling your personal goals. You might have personal goals, but what are the goals of Judaism? And are those goals worthy of adoption? To answer such a question, you have to know what the world is. And that was letter three. Letter four is, well, what's human beings place in that world? And he basically described human beings place in the world as, and obviously I can't do justice to what, how he described it last week, because the language is quite moving, but the idea that you're given to the world, the world isn't given to you. If you look at the pattern that he drew from the nature of the world around us to the role of humanity, humanity is both part of nature and a part of nature. A part of nature as in we are a, 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 a natural animal in the, the world, but we are also a part. We have free will. We can, we can break free of our natural causation. Now, obviously a person coming with a secular perspective saying, no, you can't. Okay, but it, it, it's not something that can be proven one way or the other because both people are starting on different premises. A secular critique is starting on the premise that everything is natural. A religious person is starting with a presupposition there is more than just natural. The religious person, at least from a Jewish standpoint, is that we are a combination of the two. You'll see echoes of this in more Kabbalistic literature, which will describe humanity as being an amalgamation of spirit and body. Same sort of idea Rav Hirsch is pointing to here, except he's using different language. So far, so good? Okay. Um, let's see. Let's first pause this and let's uh, perhaps make a... Okay. Okay. So uh, we're going to go from the... Uh, we're going from the paragraph at the bottom. The angel whose providence it is that, once again, if people pay attention to the reading, not just because I need people to pay attention, but also if I read something wrong, it ends up being less awkward if someone jumps in there with the, with the correct word, rather than me hanging around for three minutes, like wondering what in the world's being said. The angel whose providence is to supervise the coming of the existence of man, says one of the sages, takes the germs, which is to be a human being, brings it before the Holy One, quoting a medrash here, there's a medrash that before everyone's born, they come with the neshama to Hashem and they say, what's going to be of this? You've had the medrash, you've had this type of medrash when we, we speak about, it's actually interesting when it's a whole conversation about the type of medrashim where we speak about angels as being people and God by chatting, like what are these there to do? But he's using one, this germ, what shall it be in life? Shall he be that proceeds from it, be strong or weak, wise or simple, rich or poor? He does not. Asked, once again, we were going back just to play out the, the, the thread here. The nature of the world is the reciprocal act of love. Who wrote, it's created thus. Humanity stands apart from that and gets to say, will I be, will I take the inspiration of a blade of grass and live my life out according to the will of Hashem? Will I express love and righteousness to my fellow man and the, and the world around me? Or will I stay above from it and not take part in it? Will I break the symphony through my free will, that which allows me to transcend the natural world. And how do I transcend the natural world? Through choice. And it's actually interesting, the act to choose, if a person had to say, 
what is the one experience that is the most unnatural experience you can take part in? The most, when I say unnatural, I don't mean weird. I mean, that allows you to experience nature as being other. It's the act of choosing. Now, a person can say that when you choose, what are you doing? At least what do you think you're doing? You think there are motivations on this side, motivations on that side, and there's a spark of somethingness that's going to choose. From a materialistic, scientific standpoint, that makes absolutely no sense. There is only nature. There's no you standing above nature, but we experience that in the most fullest sense of the word when we deliberate and when we choose. That's why people say, uh, if you're going to critique the idea of free will from a secular standpoint, you would say it's an illusion. Yes, you think you're choosing, but it's just the neurons firing. And they, there's different experiments that try and show this. But everybody definitely experiences that they're free. You can't, you can't escape that. You definitely experience that you're standing above nature. It's the most godly feeling because they're not part of nature. So when it, the Medrash comes along and says, and Rapesh says, that is the area in which we truly shine when we choose. It's not how much stuff you have. It's not how strong you are. And he brings this out in a Medrash where the, the Neshama comes to before Hashem and they decide, is it going to be strong? Is it going to be weak? Is it going to be poor? Or is it going to be rich? Is it going to be wise or simple? He does not ask whether he be good or bad, pious or simple. But all these things depend on the decree of God, except for Hakol. Everything is in the hand of heaven, except for fear of heaven. What is fear of heaven? Basically, this framework. Fear of heaven is that ability to recognize you're here and act. Yes. Interesting, interesting, interesting how it parallels with love of God. But in this in this sense, in this sense, it's uh using Yerushalayim, at least from his point of view, as just how you choose to act in the world based off being in the presence of God. When he says based off being in the presence of God, recognizing that something expecting something on you. The language used earlier, you have been summoned. Now, once again, everything we're doing now is, for all intents and purposes, make-believe. Binyamin, who's in part of this conversation, might not believe any of this. He might have 500 questions in his brain about evolution, naturalism, uh, determinism. But if Hirsch is saying, put that to one side. Take Judaism on its own terms. Critique it afterwards. But hear its story. Does it call, does, is it a compelling story? Want to know, does it fit in with the scientific world? Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. Scientific world is a world which has to be dealt with. It's a very successful world, but that is a separate question. We're immersing ourselves in the story, in the demands of the Torah. The Torah is summoning you. How do you act in the presence of God? Sounds really stark when you say it like that, but that's what fear of heaven is in this respect. How do you react from being summoned? You are summoned on this calling as a human being. You are summoned to play your part in the symphony of the world. How will you react to that? That's not determined before birth. Whether you're rich or poor, maybe. Whether you will be good or bad, how will you act in the presence of God? How will you react to the fear of God? That's up to you. Yeah. Yeah. So. So a, a, a way of answering, it's a good question. The, well, how, does the, how does fear of God speak? I'm, I'm not Jewish. Why, why, why has this talking to me? So two things I could say. 
First of all, I could say that a non-Jew can read the Torah as well. A non-Jew can be believer in, a believer in that existence has a demand on them. What, is, what does that mean? I don't know. Meaning, if I'm, if, I'm a, if I'm a secular person, but I have a, I could say morality demands something of me. We experience morality as demanding something of you. What does that mean? It's, it's a hard thing to pin down from a purely secular standpoint. But when I see someone suffering, I feel compelled. And Rehash related to this. He said, your heart is in tune with this symphony of the world. When you see someone suffering, you feel compelled to help them. What is that? He said, that is the demand of God on you. Without command, necessarily. That is the demand of nature on you. And what is nature? Nature is a creation of Hashem. So a person can use secular language to describe that. Obviously not completely secular language, but no HaKadosh Baruch language. Yep. To continue. Free will. Yes, 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 that's true as well. The Egyptians had a fear of God. But I don't think we have to even go there, because that's really bringing Jewish God into the picture. We're talking about someone living in, I think perhaps the question is on the universal nature of this. Um, I always use the Chinese fisherman as an example. But the Chinese fisherman is a fisherman who's really disconnected from my way of life. He has never heard of a Jew. I think Jews aren't part of his framework. How does this talk to him? I say this still talks to him because he still feels that pang to do good. It's that natural part of what it means to be human that is shared across humanity. That conscience that Rapesh related to as being part of nature reflects Hashem and that demand, that calling, that summons. And thereby the non-Jewish fisherman, whether he'll be a rich fisherman or a poor fisherman, maybe has been decided. But whether he will act in fear of Hashem or putting it into the language of our conversation, whether how will he will act in that demand on his life will be up to him. He can choose to ignore it and be deceitful, or he can embrace it and act good. Um, let us not, therefore, judge man according to that which is hardly half in his hands, but rather according to that which got put entirely into his control, and which, therefore, can alone constitute his greatness. So let's not judge people by how many things they have. Let's judge people by what they do with the things they have, because that's in them. Make sense? All right. Let's jump ahead. The mission of mankind, thus comprehended, is to attain, is attainable by all men. He means humanity. By men in every time, with any equipment or with any equipment of powers and means in every condition. Whoever in his time, with his equipment of powers and means, in his condition, fulfills the will of Hashem towards the creatures who enter into his circle, who injures none and assists everyone according to his power to reach the goal marked for it by God. He is a man. He practices, I suppose I'm supposed to say, righteousness and love in his existence here below. His whole life, his whole being, his thoughts and feelings, his speech and action, even his business transactions and enjoyment, all of these are service of Hashem, such life is exalted above all. I'm not sure what that word is supposed to say. But anyway, this is the goal of humanity. This is the mission of mankind from a purchase standpoint. And he sees this being borne out by the time. So what do we think? It's a good mission? A noble mission? A mission worthy getting behind? So he, he hasn't he hasn't talked about shutness yet, but the beauty is he will. 
literally Shabbos and, and Bosov Acholov, because it all plays into this ultimate goal. Whenever you have a, if you look at it from a mystical standpoint or a, a Kabbalistic standpoint, Genesis is so important. Why? Because it's like the germination of existence and everything else that plays out throughout the Torah has its symbolic roots in Bracious. In the same way here, in terms of a mission and a purpose, it has its roots in the creation of mankind and the creation of the world. Just to finish off the last part, whatever enjoyment or privation, whatever abundance or need be one's lot, whether tears of resigned sorrow or joy of exalted be shed, the truly human personality, unchangeable almost as deities, sees in every grain or loss only another summons to solve afresh the same problem. Every experience that comes before us is a new experience to, 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 to solve the same problem. Thus man in his earthly flame, his earthly frame belongs to earth and his, his terrestrial existence is full of significance. As no passing breath and no ephemeral gray, uh, gray, grass blade or butterfly exists for naught, but uh, up here, furnishes its con contribution, light though it be, which God's wisdom uses it, uses the upbuilding of all. So with this lens, everything becomes purposeful. Like if you if you if you parallel it with the with the discussion of our monarch, what's the idea that our monarch is um attributed to have it? It's uh caring, it's uh it's um it's uh they happened upon the Jews. It's the Gematria Solid. There's something about a monarch that represents a nihilism, a meaninglessness to life. Refresh says that if we begin with Genesis and we look at everything as being a purposeful creator, sees everything, a human being who looks at the world through this lens, sees everything as being full of significance. Everything within this world is full of significance. Everything within this world is full of purpose. Thereby, the butterfly isn't meaningless. It may have a small purpose, but everything is meant to be here, which means you are, I think the language you used earlier, you are walking on sacred ground. There's something rich about your existence. If you adopt these lenses, the world becomes vibrant with purpose. It's like the answer to the meaning crisis. It's the, the lens that you are adopting is now. And a genuine question we will ask ourselves is, can we adopt this? What I mean by that is maybe a lot of us have adopted this and maybe some of us will adopt this. This is, and I mean this in the most respectful sense of the word, this is a myth. Not as a myth as it, it's not true. Rav Hirsch is inviting this person to look at the world through a lens of a story and a narrative. You can look at the world through the story and the narrative of Christianity. You could look at the world through the lens of uh, the North Gods or they're all different stories about the world. Rav Hirsch thinks this one's true and thinks he's justified in living his life like this. But certain people may say, my understanding of science precludes my ability to look at the world through the sense anymore. I can't look at the world as being purposeful. I know there's randomness to the core of reality. That may be a genuine question we have to struggle with. Once again, for the moment, Rav Hirsch is putting that to one side. Incidentally, Rav Hirsch did deal with these. He dealt with the evolution. He dealt with the age of the universe. All these things that to whatever extent, yes or no, were they incorporable or were they not? Happens to be, from an evolutionary standpoint, he was okay with incorporating it in terms of the evolutionary process and its ability to meld with Judaism. 
he was very worried about a philosophy that can lead from the evolutionary hypothesis or the evolutionary understanding of the world, a philosophy of survival of the fittest, and using that as a description or an imperative on how you should act. He looked at that as being very dangerous, but as a description of how the world came to be, he was okay with. But the, why, why did he feel the need to discuss it? The question is, can I incorporate myself into this worldview? To continue, but for, uh, let's not read that word again. It's empty, sorry, um, no deed. Um, yeah, hi. Hi, I'm sorry. I have a, I have a quick question. Sure. Um, so before we were saying that like everything in this world, God created for a purpose, but then in here, he, he's also talking about experiences. Like that's like a separate point, right? That like, not only is every blade of grass here for a purpose, but everything that a person experiences is also for a purpose. Beautifully put. Absolutely. And the, the language that he uses is there is, um, Sees in every grain or loss only another summons to solve afresh the same problem. That's man's earthly uh, being of uh, existence for the significance. Absolutely. Every aspect of our, it's, it's, it's a perspective on hashtacha, if you would call it. But there is a reason for everything being here, and there is a part to play it by every person. Okay. Okay. Thank you. No, that's a great point. Yeah, there is definitely a distinction between the two. No deed, uh, we did that. Um, Almost finished. There are right, uh, finished work, delivered into the hands of God that he may employ them for his completion of his universal plan. Fulfillment of the divine will with our property and our pleasure, with our thoughts, words, deeds that should be the content of our lives. And we should strive to ascertain this will. For that is the special and particular greatness of man that where the voice of God speaks in through all other creatures, to him he speaks directly, meaning everything else is compelled, man chooses, that he accept voluntarily its precepts as propelling force of his active life, meaning the command of Hashem in my life is what propels me. The will of God is what it sounds very from when we say it like that, but the fact that the, the, the sorry, sorry, a bad thing, but when we talk about what compels my life forward, is that there is an expectation that I'm supposed to be leaping towards. What is that? What, what, uh, you, 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 have, you have a person existing in the world, and then you have the state that he should be in. What makes a state a state you should be in? You're all in seminary now. After seminary, you want to do something. You probably have some sort of plan of what you want to do. That goal that you've set before yourself, whatever it is, either it goes to the shops afterwards, that goal, that, that, that jump where you are now to where you want to be is compelled by something. It could be compelled by your parents. It can be compelled by your friends, whatever it may be. What we're actually talking about, there is a place that we need to be. Compelled by action. That is compelled by the expectation and the, the will of Hashem. Hashem design, describes a goal that we're supposed to be striving towards and that compels action. In a, in a very simplistic, uh, simple way, it's like Tyra and Mitzvahs. I are trying to achieve a universal plan in the world. And through the living out of the will of Hashem, we achieve that goal. We become part and parcel of the language that's used by someone like Rabbi Sachs, the covenant partnership. Um, but, um, or, or, even that's an earlier phrase, but the idea that you are taking a partnership role in the world with Hashem. Yeah. The, the goal isn't to have the partnership. 
at least the way he's describing, the goal is to achieve a purpose. Through the achieving of the purpose, you grow close to God. But then it, it stops the language of being closeness to God being vague. When I adopt your goals, I'm closer to you. The will of Hashem, at least to the point that he's described it here, is that we have a part to play in the natural world. There's no Jew, there's no Tariyat. There's a part that humanity has to play in the natural world. And that is through living out justice and righteousness and love to the world. That doesn't mean you, you become a doormat, but on a most in, in a basic fundamental sense, that is the goal of humanity, to live out the way the world is, but to choose to do it. Rather than a raccoon that just does it, you choose to do it. And that is called using your freedom of the will. And through doing that, in, in, in line with Hashem's will, you're achieving something profound. Someone who, like what you're saying, righteous, Jewish, non-Jewish, either way, like yeah. doing the right thing, yeah. like good person. We'll say versus someone like fulfilling their specific like tikkun of like what they're meant to do in this world. If someone's fulfilling what they're meant to do and what they're not meant to do, but either way they're a righteous person, they're still they're still like accomplishing the same goal. Simply speaking, yeah. Meaning nobody's doing the same thing. Everybody's circumstances are different. So if you're living out, if you're doing the good thing in the world, the right thing in the world. Ascertaining what exactly that is may be tricky at times, may not always get it right. But if you look at this as being the compelling force for Hydro, you're on the right track. Just to finish off the last, uh, go bit my go go to my binyamin, that's the chap he's talking, and examine yourself, examine yourself in comparison with a blade of grass or a rolling peel of thunder. And if you do not despite all your wealth and property and enjoyment of inner and outer possessions, blush with shame. And they veil your face in the presence of the angelic grandeur of such creatures, because your selfish pettiness, and if you do not, if you do not, then rouse yourself with all your strength, with every spark of your being to acquire for yourself such angelic power, then go and lament the degradation which our age has brought to you. And then uh, he goes through the Tehillim of Barthinath, which is a, everything comes together to praise Hashem. He says, we take example from the blade of grass. The blade of grass doesn't damage. The blade of grass doesn't do evil. The blade of grass does its best because it has to. But you can take heart from that. You can take inspiration from that. That what it dies through, through compulsion, you can do, do through choice. Any thoughts, any questions? This is letter four. Humanity. So, so, right, so the way, rather than just saying, do the will of God, he opened up with a description of what the natural world is, which is the playground for the will of Hashem. Before any human being arose, Rapesh sees the natural world being a, 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 a space for this reciprocal giving. That's, what he, that's how he chooses to see the natural world. And yes, very much so, very much so. So the, the, the reason why it's tricky is that creating a relationship is that your focus isn't on God in this case. The way he's describing it is your focus isn't on Hashem necessarily. It's about doing the will of Hashem. Because if I tell you, I think this could be an outgrowth of his philosophical uh, milieu, but if I tell you make a relationship with Hashem, it doesn't actually mean anything because you don't know what I mean by that. 
you can envision an idea of Hashem and then make a relationship with your imagination, but that's that's not necessarily what we're supposed to do. Now, obviously, we do that to a certain extent because when we dive into Hashem, we need to dive into something. So, based off the Jewish tradition and the Torah, we we come up with something that we're going to focus on. But Rapesh is telling us that way we grow closer to Hashem, the way we live out our purpose in the world is recognizing the world is a certain type of place. The certain type of place the world is, is a world that has a purpose for me in it. And I'm supposed to express that reciprocal giving that I experience in my conscience. And I'm supposed to live that out in the world. That's the goal of humanity. And you can envision if everyone, here's a simple question. If everyone did that, that's called Mashiach. It's not such a bad description of the world. If everybody truly took heart from the blade of grass and said, I'm going to do what the blade of grass does, but I'm going to do it actively. That's the perfection of the world. It's not a, uh, what's, what is Mashiach? This is Mashiach. Yeah. Mashiach is part of the people. It gets to a higher level, so it's not exactly the same. It's more like if they do it now with their knowledge. Right. No, so I, I don't exactly know what that all would mean to lose your free will, because if you lose your free will, then, well, then all goes apart. It's pretty pointless. Perhaps the idea of losing parts of your free will is that if the time of Mashiach arrives and there is a, it's the best way of putting it, if there's a miraculous opening, let's call it, or a, 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 a miraculous event, yes, aspects of your free will get taken away. Why? Because you no longer doubt the existence. You no longer doubt the reality of Hashem. This isn't a story you're asked to live in. It's reality you know to be true. Right now, this is a story you're being asked to live in. If Hashem appeared to you in all his splendor and glory, you wouldn't have much of a choice. Which is, by the way, why we have the parallel between Purim and Shavuos. Purim, you're right. Yeah, there is another, there is a separate comparison between the two. Yeah, absolutely. In the respect that I'm talking about it now is that when when we receive the Torah, there is a medrash that describes the mountain was put on above our heads. We were compelled to accept it. Purim, we accepted it out of love. Why is that so important? Because both sides of the story are necessary. Uh, yeah. How would you respond to a secular person who asks, why should I believe in a God who inspires fear when people say God fear? Um, I'd have to chat what you mean by fear. Why should, Why would I find it? Then I would say. Like if a secular person said, like if you were like, oh, to be God fearing, and you read them this thing and it says, in the fear of the Lord, like, and a secular person might respond, um, well, my, like my God doesn't want me to be afraid. Oh God. So I, so I said you have a very, without being cynical, I would respond to the person and say, well, we have to appreciate when we say God, we don't mean a very powerful person. If you break that one paradigm, it makes a lot more sense. Fear of God doesn't necessarily mean fear of a super powerful being. It's where we corporalize God. Fear of Hashem doesn't mean Hashem doesn't have personality that doesn't have, hasn't got love for us. But when we talk about fear of God and we start thinking of some sort of divine dictator, we, we're, in, we're, in the, we're in the playground of the idolatrous at that point. When I say fear of Hashem, if I had to break that down in, in the most secular language for our secular friends, mm -hmm. is there is something fundamental to reality that calls upon me to act in a certain way. You, Mr. Secular Person, feel that as well. How do I know you feel that? Because you think you believe in human rights. Why? Oh, yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Just, yeah. Idea of like like free will and like natural good and all that stuff. All this stuff was the same before Adam and Torah and, and sin. So meaning, 
this, there was a scene like one of them said, and like he was saying, like, just bless the way for her. Uh, so what do you mean by that? Yeah, so it's internal, so it makes it this free will that we have. So it's, it's a, I'll get to that in a moment because Rapesh's understanding of the whole uh, eight sadas flavor out that that's not like that at all. So we'll, we'll talk about that in a second because you're right, a good point. But he is going to discuss that when he speaks about like the how humanity developed. Yes, Scott, you had a question. Um, hi, yes. Um, I guess I was confused about something you were mentioning before about the Rambam and like how like these different people have different conceptions about why like God created like what what the purpose is. So it's like if we're saying that the purpose here is to live a righteous, just life the way God wants, but to choose it, then like that doesn't really answer the question of like, then why did God create the world in the first place? Um, So is he just like. Does he just agree with the idea that God is a giver and wanted to give? And like, that's why, like, is he just going off of that assumption or is he making like a different idea? So from my understanding, that moves into the world of what we, what we call metaphysics. I, I don't think Rehersh discusses that directly. Just playing back off the Rambam and Chaste Kreskes, the Rambam wouldn't answer the question. He said, it doesn't make sense to ask, the que- ask, ask such a question of God. Because if you ask why does God what you can ask what the reason is for me, what what reason do I have within the framework? But why did God create the framework? He would say that's not a question. Because okay. the framework, right. if there was a reason for the framework, the reason would transcend mm-hmm. God himself, and that's not okay. And also mm-hmm. he would also have problems with you saying God is perfect. Any positive attribute ascribed to God, the Rambam would have a problem with. But mm-hmm. because God created to love, out of love, to give and to be loved. He would very much immerse himself in the language of love as being essential to what we mean by Hashem. Mm-hmm. I suppose you could fit, if you, would, you needed a metaphysical structure, then um, our Hashem by Rechaz de Kreskos would work within Rav Hirsch's description here, I think. Why would it transgress God's history? Have a reason. Yeah. Because, um, but first, that answer the question? Uh, yes, thank you so much. Um, um, because when you, to give a, a parallel to what I said about when you're moving from part A to part B, why you're moving is because you're compelled by something to move you. Um, if I say why, uh, what reason do I have to get on the bus or the train in 10 minutes? Why am I going towards the train? It's because I, I have a train to catch. That is the reason why I'm going to start moving. That I am in service to that reason. What would I do in service to that reason? Wow. I will walk really, really fast. If I say God has a reason, then there's something God is doing in service to that reason. Well, can you just say that, like the fact that the result is here implies something caused it, and there was a re- like meaning, meaning. I don't know that logic would imply that nothing was done. You know, like no, for sure, for sure, for sure. That's what that's a, a, a you could you could say a, a, a difficulty with the Rambam. But Rafshadi Kreskos says that Rafshadi Kreskos is. I mean, I'm pretty sure this is him, but I'm not 100 percent sure. But if God wants to give, and if I have two parallel people, um. John and Bill both live in a city. John is the goodest person in the world. He lives in the city all by himself, but he is the goodest person in the world. And he remains beautiful in his goodness in his house with nobody else there. That is John. Now, Bill, on the other hand, Bill lives in another city. He also has this beautiful goodness and uh, need to give and love. But the difference is there are plenty of people who need his help. And he expresses that love. What position is more ideal? In some way, the second, because the love is able to be expressed. 
So from Rav Kraskas's point, if the point of the world was love, then the reason why creation came about is self-evident. There's no one to, to act towards in that love. So that wouldn't that wouldn't be um, the issue of Rambam. No, because Rambam wouldn't say there's a reason. Uh, but, but meaning Rambam would find that problematic. Yes. I'm sorry, wait, maybe I missed what you said, like, linked out a little, but, like, if love is, like, the reason God is doing something, like, is God subject to that? I just think that... Okay, you would say that's that. essential to what we mean. Right. So, yeah, yeah. Um, I, think, I think within Christianity, they have the... They, they answer the problem about God being good, I perfectly good in isolation. Right? So they, the way they answer is the Trinity is, like, a reciprocal giving within the Trinity. It's quite clever. Um, yeah. So, um, the next stage is why Jew? What's specific about Jewish people? And thereby he goes through, he begins to go through Jewish history, um, the education uh, process of Hashem towards the world. That's also very key. Meaning Hashem, uh, Rav Hirsch looks at the process of Jewish history in the Bible as being a, 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 uh, a giving to humanity through education. Every, that, that Hashem tries to make uh, humanity be something, it doesn't work, it gets destroyed and it goes to one family. Then it gets destroyed again and then it goes to another family and then it becomes one nation. Yeah? Oh, wait, sorry, what do you think my family was? Oh, right. Yeah. Um, but just to touch upon before we finish the idea of the eight sadas, the, the, um, the tree of good and evil, um, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, so often this is described as that they... Uh, they ate from it, and then Yitzhak became eternalized. And Maimonides has something similar based off it about the appreciation of objective truths and objective truths, and Rafesh dismisses all of that. He says, why is it called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Why is it called that? He says, to say that you didn't have free will beforehand makes a mockery of the whole situation. Because if we didn't have free will, who's choosing? That's not particularly useful. If, if I, God says to Adam and Eve, do not eat from the tree, this tree in this garden, but enjoy everything else. Mm. Did they have the ability to listen to that? Yeah. In which case they could choose. Yeah. In which case choice, once again, doesn't become a never outgrowth of uh, the sin. It becomes very fundamental, which is important for him. But also he says, okay, then what was the tree of good and evil? He said the tree of good and knowledge of good and evil is what he calls al-shame sci-fi. It was a mode of the first commandment. The first commandment to these people was, from a perfect understanding, that if something is beautiful, it doesn't mean it's good. Mm. Hashem can tell us not to have something that seems beautiful, but even though we want to do it, we want to immerse ourselves in it, but Hashem is saying no. And there's some sort of uh, commitment to that higher calling that they shouldn't have eaten, even though it looked good. They disobeyed the first commandment because they had a better idea. Now, often the commandments in the Torah make sense to us, but sometimes they don't. And in a way, the times when they, we can't fully understand why is a bigger expression of our commitment. Because even when I don't know why, I'm committed to the overall plan. I'm committed to the nature of Hashem. I'm committed to the story that this is the world Hashem created. When Hashem tells me to do something that I don't feel I want to do right now, but I compel myself, I'm living out that fear of heaven. And the tree of knowledge of good and evil was how would you live it out? You were commanded not to eat from this tree. Why this tree? It's not important. It wasn't a magical tree. It was the tree you were told not to eat from. To demonstrate this fundamental idea that the good isn't always beautiful and the bad isn't always yuck. 
Does that make sense? Why the tree? That's a good question. I'm not sure. Uh, why a tree? Why why was the mode of this educational experience a garden? I can think of reasons, but they would be pulling them out of a hat. Because a, a, a garden is a paradise, a garden is walled off. Garden has everything provided for it. It needs to be tilled. The tree, though. Oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> trees in the garden. Oh, the trees in the garden. Uh, um, surely if they were even tempted by it, though, there was something internal, like there was an internal battle. Like, even, I can understand people say that there's, like, um, that the Sahara was external, but surely even if it was, like, should I, shouldn't I, kind of thing. So that's why he says he didn't understand that well, that, that vision of internal externality. He says he doesn't understand it, and more than that, uh, I, I agree with him, but uh, I'm sure the person who takes the approach that it was internal, external can give a better description. And what do you mean? So, as I say, people say that it was external and then it was internal. Uh, he's not taking that. Oh, uh, so he's saying it was internal. internal. It's not because, like, meaning, like, people always say that the reason it's so hard for people, humans now, is because of that that happened. Yeah. But the struggle existed before. That's, the, that's the vision. Right, okay. So it's just making... what he means by the Yitzhahara and Yitzhahayev is another discussion. Right. Yeah. Any other questions? Is that the view of the Rambam? No. Uh, partially. It's more complex with the Rambam. It's more than Mikhtar Eliyahu, I think, the famous in the Dasa. 